Hello, and welcome to episode 30 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me as always is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hey, Jeff. Carl, as most listeners will already know, is the host of the 30 Love podcast, and if you're not already a 30 Love listener, now is a great time to get started because Carl's already released a couple of U.S. Open-themed episodes, and I understand there will be several more. Carl is lucky enough to be attending the U.S. Open on a near-daily basis, so hopefully we'll get a lot of insights from him about that. I was lucky enough to attend the U.S. Open on a once-daily basis. Once, not daily. Um... That was Monday, so I have a little bit of insight into the the new grounds and and some of the action from the first round of the Open. And without further ado, let's dive right in. Carl, I know you've been able to attend some night sessions so far. Just sticking with the tennis for now, I want to talk about some of the changes to the the format and the grounds later on. But just with the tennis, has anything stuck out to you? Players that have impressed you? Upsets that surprised you? Things of that nature? I thought before the tournament that Serena Williams would win it. Not as in I gave her more than a 50% chance, but she was the favorite for me. And that's not that long a limb to go out on because I think she was the betting favorite too. But I've been I've been impressed so far. She hasn't had a really tough matchup, but I th- think she's been moving really well, serving well, and making good decisions. I, I stick by that prediction, I also am very excited for her third round matchup with Venus Williams while wishing that it were later in the tournament. Yeah, you will be shocked to learn that that matchup was on my list of potential topics as well. I don't think anybody's really talking about that. Has anyone even noticed that the, the sisters are playing in the third round? No, I'm sure they're going to put it on court four at noon. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's... That's where it's headed. So the premier match of the of the first week of the tournament definitely is this Serena Venus third rounder. The the somewhat ironic part is that the draw looked unfortunate when it first came out because Serena and Venus are in the same quarter as Simona Halep, the number one seed. Another not a co favorite, but someone who you know, had a chance going in. And it was unfortunate for everybody. It could have led to a Serena Halep fourth rounder um and of course Halep lost in the first round first match really uh, to Kaya Kanepi which I unfortunately attended and and wept through so now Halep's out of the picture and this does look like a pretty clear path to I don't know the semifinals and then in the top half of the draw something like that um let's start with the the, the single match itself Venus is going to be a tougher test to Serena than the two women she's played so far. How do you think that's going to play out, Carl? I think back to a, I think, quarterfinal that they played here two or three years ago, and it was very high-quality three-set win to Serena. And I expect something similar. I, I think Venus isn't playing quite at Serena's level, but she's playing well and maybe has had tougher opponents. So that feels about right. I think it's going to be a night session. It'll be a little cooler by that point in the tournament. And they, you know, might be playing for the last time here. You probably could have said that five or 10 years ago and sounded like a, like a smart forecaster. So who knows, but Venus has, 
really not matched her great results from last year so far. So seeing them in a big night match here playing each other could be a last-chance ticket. Yeah, and even if they do both stick around for another few years, unless they're one and two or top four or something, then the odds are still pretty long that they draw each other just from just because of the size of the draw and everything that can happen. Um, so yeah, just to confirm what, what I said, that it would have been fourth round with Simona. Even the quarterfinal has opened up for the winner of that match because Garbini and Mukaruza lost in a pretty massive upset to Carolina Muchova late last night. Um, Muguruza, we talked about a couple weeks ago on the podcast. She's had a, a really a tough year, aside from a French Open semifinal, I think. Um, it, it's been pretty bleak, and she's now out of the top ten. But Karolina Pliskova is still lurking there in that quarter, so that could be interesting. But I want to talk about the second quarter, which is where Sloane Stevens is slotted in, and also where Alina Spitalina is located as the number seven seed. Sloan lost a set yesterday to Anhalina Kalanina, which I think for most tennis fans is the first they ever heard the name Anhalina Kalanina. Um, Carl, we've, we've been talking about Sloan quite a bit the last few weeks. Do you see her as the favorite to, to reach the semifinals out of this part of the draw? I, I think not quite just because she has such a tough third round matchup. She's going to play Azarenka who looked really good in the second round against Gavrilova and I see that matchup as as almost 50-50. Yeah, it's a tough one. My my Elo which should take into account Azarenka's layoffs, it does give Sloan 62%. So a little better for her, but after losing a set to Kalanina and knowing what Azarenka is capable of, yeah, 50-50 sounds about right. If she gets past Azarenka, do you think she's the, the favorite out of that quarter? Yeah, narrowly. Over Svitolina? Yeah. So let's talk about Svitolina. We, we touched on this a little bit when we were chatting during some matches on Monday night, and Svitolina has the curse of being one of these players who's been very good since she's been quite young. So she's turning 24 in a couple of weeks and still hasn't won a slam. Uh, I think she was one of the women who briefly reached number one last year, but hasn't really uh, stuck at number one. So all, all of the, the big career-type goals you talk about for a player, Svitolina seems to have them within reach, but hasn't gotten there. And lately I seem to take a bit of a step back. And I have a hard time fully understanding that because, to me, she she looks as fit as she's ever been. She looks like she's playing as well as she ever has, but she's not getting the results. Um, I would agree. I, I would have a hard time picking her to come out of that quarter and to beat Stevens in a, in, in a marquee U.S. Open match. Do you have any insight, Carl, into what's holding Spitalina back? I think some of it is probably slightly bad luck. I mean, she's had most of her losses have been to pretty good players in pretty close matches. So she could potentially turn that around without turning around too many points in a match. But maybe she's just reached the extent of her 
potential. I mean, I think she's still not as aggressive as a lot of the players she loses to and sometimes just has a match taken out of her hands. Yeah, it's it's interesting you say that. We talked about this quite a bit in last year's episodes, I think, when we, before before we had the Halep Wozniak the Australian Open final, before Halep won Roland Garros this year. There, there was this narrative that that more passive players had a harder time winning slams, and the, the evidence pointed in that direction. I think I wrote something about that for the Economist, and uh, Halep has overcome that. And there's always talk about her becoming a little more aggressive. She's put a little bit more speed on her shots. She's serving a little more aggressively, but I wouldn't say she's really changed her game style very much. And Spitalina does generally fit in the same mold, but. When when she has opportunities, I think that Svitolina is the more aggressive player compared to Halep, and definitely compared to Wozniacki. So so I wonder if it's maybe a combination of the two. You're right that that, that you do see matches like the Halep Kanepi first rounder, where a more passive counterpuncher type player can just be beaten, and there's nothing they can do about it when someone is is hitting hard and playing too well. Um, so maybe it's just a matter of time before Spitalina gets these same opportunities. And Halep hadn't won a slam at 24. She hadn't reached number one at 24. And you know, Spitalina has a lot of time to get there. So maybe that's all it takes. But yeah, it sounds like we, we agree that this is not the slam where that's going to happen. Uh, I didn't mean for this to be a quarter-by-quarter quarter blow of the draw. So I don't want to dig too deep into the just the... the the overall draw details, I'm sure anybody who's interested will have had plenty of opportunity to do that already since we are a few days into the tournament. But in the, the third quarter of the draw, there's a potential third rounder that I would love to see. That would be between Maria Sharapova and Yelena Ostapenko. Sharapova has to get by Sarana Kirstea, and Ostapenko has to play Taylor Townsend. Both of those are winnable matches, I think. Uh, you'd have one of the best players of the previous generation and her power hitting against one of the best up-and-coming sluggers. What do you see happening if we do get that Sharapova-Ostapenko matchup, Carl? Uh, rally length of around three and 100 total winners and 112 total unforced errors. Yeah, that sounds about right. Even the, the three rally length might be optimistic. Speaking of unforced errors, maybe maybe you haven't followed up on this, but when when we watched the Shapovalov Ajayalia seam match the other night, they posted some really high unforced error totals at the end of the match, like over forty unforced errors for both players, and the match didn't even didn't even complete because Ajayalia seem retired early. Have you have you seen any more unforced error totals that seem surprisingly high in the tournament? Good question. I I don't think any were were totally out of whack. I was a little surprised to see Federer over thirty against Nishioka. I, I'm always a big advocate for accuracy and unforced error counts, and some slams, notably Wimbledon in the past, have been very generous to players. I didn't see all of that all young Canadian battle that that you referenced, but I think what was really shocking, maybe even more than the unforced error count, was that the winner count was so low. And that seems that in the past has been a number that's harder to fudge. And there's no reason to think a tournament would be undercounting those. So 
I think maybe we really did just luck into a match that was pretty sloppy. Yeah, that's not the way that I would normally use the word luck, but yeah, it's um, that could be the case. I, I, and yeah, your interest in Wimbledon error counting is probably what spurred some of mine. I think you wrote something a few years ago about how Wimbledon's um, methodology, if you want to be so generous as to call it that, that I don't think they ever call a serve return an unforced error. Um, right, I mean, even in, on a second serve. Yeah, and in general, they're uh, yeah they, they they try to hoard all their unforced errors for the scorekeepers. I don't know who wants them if the players don't get them. But yeah, it's strange. It, it, it we do need more consistency in how these things are counted, or we need better stats that uh, that aren't based on subjective judgments. But, but anyway, I guess that's something to keep an eye on to see if there's some some kind of bias in it from one tournament to the next. But that it's good that it hasn't been totally out of whack like some Wimbledons in the past. Um, one more interesting third... Actually, there's two more interesting third-round matchups. Both of these are in the bottom quarter. The first one, um, Petra Kvitova could, in the third round, face Arena Sabalenka. And that's another, another match where a, a average rally length of three would be pretty generous. And we could see some astronomical winner and unforced error totals. Sabalenka just won New Haven. She's had a really good summer. Uh, she's another one of the, the, the best like aggressive up-and-coming stars of the game next to Ossipenko. Um, do you think that's a potential upset, Carl? Do you think Sabalenka would have the edge over Kvitova at this point? Yeah, I think she might. Kvitova is well-known for struggling on North American hard courts and and also potentially in extreme heat. So I think the conditions make it pretty tough to project her to go far. Yeah, and Sabalenka hasn't seemed to struggle much in the weather at all. Um, you know, the New Haven might have been almost as hot as, as the U.S. Open has been so far. Not quite, but uh, but it was definitely bright and, and humid and all that stuff. And... Everyone was, was collapsing around her, but she came out of that tournament successful. And she also, I think, reached the semis in Cincinnati, which is traditionally one of the more brutal uh, stops on the North American hardcore circuit. Um, one more third-round matchup. This is also in the bottom quarter. Kiki Burtons, who huge dark horse pick, having come off the Cincinnati title, beating Simona Halep there, having a breakthrough year on multiple surfaces. So Kiki Burtons has to play an American qualifier, Francesca Di Lorenzo, in the second round. So that's very winnable. If she does get through that, potential third-round matchup is Jeannie Bouchard, who has just taken a bulldozer through her qualifying draw and gotten this far pretty easily. So I don't know if Jeannie is playing at her best, but there's another really aggressive player to watch. Um, how do you see that one, Carl? Is is Burton still a favorite, decide, despite Bouchard's good form so far? Yeah, I think so. I we haven't seen a really deep run by Bouchard in a while, and it's it's impressive what she's done so far. But Burton's is suddenly an an all court star and has really held up consistently uh, this this summer on grass and hard court. So I'd, I'd favor her. Yeah, the, the, I agree. I think she's one of the most interesting players on the WT right now. 
just I mean, the fact that she has a great overall game I and mean, she's a big hitter, but that's that that's not her her the extent of her game style the way it is. So many other young players. And she's had she has done so well, and and now is finally converting that success onto hard courts. So it makes this this bottom quarter really interesting to me. The winner of let's say it's Burton's Bouchard, the winner of that match potentially gets Wozniacki or someone who upsets Wozniacki, like maybe Katarina Siniakova. That's a, a possibility. And then whoever comes out of that section gets Kvitova, Sabalenka, maybe Kazakina or Naomi Osaka. Um, I think. I think we're pretty much looking at Kvitova, Sabalenka, Burtons, and Wozniacki, but there are some other other players in there. If you had to pick one name out of that group, who do you think is your semifinalist? I go with Wozniacki, not necessarily from recent form, but two finals here and the Australian Open title this year, and so fit that the tough conditions probably help her chances. Yeah, that's interesting. It's not the name I would have picked, um, but you're right. She's always played well, usually played well here. Um, another benefit is she shouldn't have too much of a struggle in the next couple of rounds. Like most of the other players we're talking about have some dangerous stop before they get to the, the second week, but Wozniacki gets Lesia Sorenko in the next round. I mean, that's someone who could score an upset, but generally a, a pretty routine win for someone like Wozniacki. And then she gets Siniakova or Tom Leonovich, um, both both beatable players for Waz, I think. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's I can definitely see that happening. I, I would love to see Burton's in the semifinal, but I might be getting ahead of myself a little bit, as I'm prone to do with uh, young WTA prospects. So, so, Carl, anything else that has caught your eye on the women's side? That's my list of, of notable matchups anything that's happened so far or or coming up that you wanted to touch on i caught a little of the kenan sakari match last night on grandstand and was pretty impressed with kenan i hadn't seen her much before and pretty smart player a lot of tools unusual service motion but seemed pretty accurate and effective user of the moon ball always fun to see on the court Interesting. Okay. I have seen a couple Kenan matches. I haven't picked up too much of the Moonball. Um, yeah, and it's a good win to beat Sakari. Maybe not Sakari's best surface, but she's another player who's broken through this season, and I would have expected her to win that match. So, yeah, nice nice win for Kenan. Uh, speaking of unusual tactics, we were talking about this a few days ago, Carl, the way that some tactics might be underused. I just saw on Twitter before we started recording the podcast that at an ITF tournament, I think it was a Thai player. It was a Thai tournament. I think it was a, a local player who was serving sidearm, not exactly an underarm arm serve, but served sidearm for the whole match. Not probably the smartest tactic because there's no surprise involved. You're just serving badly. Um, and she was beaten and I think won only four games. But I don't know. These things are creeping in. Maybe we'll see more more um, unpredictable stuff happening in tennis. Yeah, there's always going to be the trade-off. Like, do you master a sidearm serve to use it five times in a match when you could be working on the serve you're going to hit 95 times in the match? But I I love seeing unusual shots and seeing if they can actually be effective. So I will check that out. 
Yeah, and, and Moonballs seem like one case where you don't have to make that trade-off as much because especially uh, especially women in the juniors game hit a lot of Moonballs, have to deal with a lot of Moonballs. So it isn't like they'd be developing a special skill. It's just that most players grow out of it or they learn that they, they have to hit fewer Moonballs. So it, it, it does take a lot of strategy not to just hand over points, but... Yeah, used effectively, it can be pretty dangerous. So maybe she's on to something there, and maybe some other players, players will pick that up as well. So switching over to the men's draw, uh, let's, let's start with probably the, the biggest match of this week, assuming it happens. We have a third-round match of Roger Federer and Nick Kyrgios. Uh how dangerous do you think this is for Federer, Carl, to, to draw Nick Kyrgios in the third round? First, I want to put up the big caveat that we're reporting before Kyrgios, before either of them play their second round matches. And Kyrgios all summer has looked questionable physically. And in his first round match, looked like he was ready to, to stop playing after losing the second set, especially in the heat. So not at all a sure thing that this match happens. And I, I guess Benoit Paire could give Federer a hard time. I think he did on grass this year. I think if we get to the match, it is dangerous for Fed because his big weakness, not, not a new one, but a particularly glaring one lately, has been returning serve and, and getting break opportunities. And the one thing Kyrgios has been able to do consistently, even when he hasn't been able to play the points as well as he as he could at peak condition is serve and he's serving aggressively and he's serving first serves on second serves or, or rendering the distinction between them moot so i could see a lot of tie breaks and a lot of trouble for federer yeah it's a tough draw i mean whoever whichever of the top four seeds drew djokovic was already going to have a hard time but the fact that the top seed who drew Djokovic also drew Kyrgios as a potential third rounder, that's, that's tricky. Um, we talked about this either in our last episode or the one before that, but since if Fed does get through that, then we have Federer Djokovic most likely in the quarterfinal. Have you seen anything that changes your estimate of that match? I think I remember you giving Djokovic the edge in that head-to-head do you still think that's the case? I do, and I'm I'm still picking Djokovic. Djokovic had trouble in his first round match as well with the Heat. He's getting a night session tonight, which maybe will help. I I still maybe I'm just putting too much weight on the Cincinnati final, but it felt like other matches they've played in the last few years. It was their first match in, in two and a half years. And, and just how dominant Djokovic was in not really facing much pressure on his own serve and getting into a lot of Federer service games. I just, I don't see that pattern changing here. I don't think the court is playing particularly fast, which would have helped Federer. Yeah, and I, I would agree. I don't, I haven't seen anything that, that changes my estimate. I mean, I, I don't know, maybe to me, this is a, 60-40 or 65-35 type of match, so we could definitely see, see Federer come through it. But but yeah, unless Djokovic is 
is more fragile than he's looked, I think. Um, I'm with you there. He's the favorite going in. Um, moving upward through the draw, that the Federer quarter is the bottom one. Um, I'm always interested in Alexander Zverev at slams, partly because I, since the beginning of the year, I've been charting all of his matches. So I kind of feel like an Alexander Zverev super fan, even though I'm not. Um, I watch as much as the average super fan does. Um, and that involves watching him have have some horrible performances at, at Grand Slams. It, it also involved watching a, a ton of sets between Roland Garros and Wimbledon. He was playing almost nothing but five setters over the summer. Um, so the the question to me is, in the past it's always been, like, is this the slam where Zverev's finally going to get through all this and make a semi or a final? Uh, to me, the question now feels more like who's going to stop him? Like, who, who's going to be the surprising upsetter of Zverev? And today, maybe it says, well, it already happened, and what, by the time you listen to this, he gets Nicholas Mahu, which seems like probably not the player to knock him out. After that, either Ebden or Kohlschreiber, also not really big threats. After that, it's Nishikori or Nishikori, Monfils, or Diego Schwartzman. So, little more threat there, but still not the sort of players who anybody like Zverev should be losing to. What do you think, Carl? Is this Zverev's slam um, to finally break through? If not, is there one of these guys who stick out as the one who's going to to, to knock him out this time around? Well, obviously Diego Schwartzman. Obviously but, Diego Schwartzman. But, I, you know, I, I think you frame the question as who is going to surprise him. And, of course, we won't expect it before it happens. So I, I think just about any of the guys you mentioned could be the one. Starting with Mayu, I mean, he's a really smart player and has a tricky game style. And I could see him flummoxing Zverev. Ebden also plays similarly, comes to net a lot, serves and volleys a lot and has had a really good summer. Uh, I, I don't, you know, I wouldn't favor either of those net men against Varev or even close, but I would not be that much more shocked by those losses than by some of his others at slams. I certainly didn't see Borna Chorich beating him last year. Since, since then, Chorich has had a pretty good set of results and has backed it up, but at the time, he was he was really struggling. And then I could certainly see Monfils, Nishikori, or Schwartzman, if they're playing well enough to get to that, I guess it would be fourth round, uh, to give Zverev a hard time. Yeah, I, mean, I agree. I didn't phrase that question the, the best to have you be predicting who's going to surprise us. But, but yeah, you do a good job outlining... How, how many dangerous players there are in this section. Now, I guess it's, it's one of those things that always the narrative will change after it happens. Like they, they don't really look that dangerous if Zverev beats them 2, 3, and 4, but any of them could be made to look dangerous after they beat Zverev in five sets. But the potential's definitely there. Um, yeah, I, I don't think I'm as big of an Ebden fan as you are, but he is a bit unorthodox, and, and you're right, he's... He, he could make a surprise third-round appearance, get past Cole Schreiber, and then give Zverev some difficulties. So, yeah, there's there's some, some danger there. And, and unfortunately for Zverev, if he does make the quarterfinals, then probably Marin Cilic, which 
sounds like a tough ask at the U.S. Open. Um, but we'll save that for, for if that happens for our episode next week. Um, moving up the draw, we talked about Vavrinka for the last couple episodes, and, and you either said or I didn't allow you to say that Vavrinka's success would depend heavily on the draw. As it turned out, he drew Grigor Dimitrov for the second slam in a row in the first round. He beat Dimitrov, um, knocking out the number six seed, which is pretty good for someone of Vavrinka's recovering health. Uh, got past a qualifier in the second round, so now he's got a third-round matchup with Milos Ronic, which might not be the most thrilling tennis anybody's ever seen because Milos Ronic is half of it, but pretty high-profile match. This is a surface that you know, Ronic should be able to take advantage of. He's done, I think he's done pretty well this tournament in the past. I can't bring anything to mind, but who would you pick there, Carl? Is, is Does Vavrinka have enough to get past Milos? I'm becoming a Vavrinka believer again, so I pick him, but I think it's a very, very close match. Definitely one where we can expect some tie breaks. Um, and then if Vavrinka does beat Ronich, then he might get to play Isner in the round after that, which whew, makes you hope Vavrinka does, because if Ronich wins, then we have Ronich-Isner, which is like four hours of unwatchable tennis guaranteed. So U.S. Open, home of the fifth set tiebreaker. Oh, uh, yeah, thank heaven for small favors like that. So in the top quarter of the draw, that's, of course, where Rafael Nadal is sitting. According to my odds, and I'm not actually sure what the, the betting market says about this, but I've got Nadal as a pretty heavy favorite, partly because Djokovic and Federer in the same quarter, so... Whoever, once one of them comes out of that quarter or once them is, one of them is otherwise eliminated, then we might see a more even split between Rafa's odds and one of their odds. But for now, Rafa looks like the favorite. Uh, do you see anybody in his neighborhood in the draw? I mean, I guess he, he, he could get Kevin Anderson in the quarterfinal. Um, do you see anybody in that part of the draw who is much of a danger to Rafa? His biggest danger might be his very next match against Kyron Kachanov. I, I still haven't really seen Kachanov push Nadal, and he's had chances. He's, they've played a few times, but maybe this is the time. He's he's a really solid player. He's got a big serve. He hits big. And, yeah, I, I see Kevin Anderson. Maybe, again, I'm waiting too much there final last year, but I just don't see... Anderson is pushing Rafa, but maybe Kachanov can. Yeah, I would have picked Kachanov out of the list as well. Uh, he was the guy who knocked Zverev out of the French Open. Uh, that was a, a bit of a coming out party for him. But I think, I think the sort of fans who watch guys further down the rankings have had their eyes on Kachanov for a while. I mean, really big guy, really big serve, uh, decent all-around game. I mean, there, there's a lot of stories in recent tennis history of, of guys who fit that profile who never do a lot more than Kachanov has, has done so far. So, I mean, there, there's there's a number of career paths you could take from here, but the potential is definitely there. So, yeah, and I don't think anybody's picking him to beat Rafa, but could definitely take a set, maybe even two. He could make things interesting for for another Arthur Ashe crowd. So, Just a quick note, Jeff. Uh, Kachanov had a really good chance to knock Zverev out of 
Roland Garros, but Zverev came back from two sets to one down, and then he lost a team in the next round. Oh, right. Yeah, so I, I charted that match and it makes me think I have some really massive errors in that chart. <laughs> I've got the players backwards. So, so yeah, lots of potential. Hasn't fulfilled it yet. Even in that one single match. Thank you, Carl. So let's save any, any more picking of, of ultimate winners for what hopefully will be another episode early next week when we, we know better who's in the fourth round, maybe the quarters by that time. So, speaking more generally about the U.S. Open, the big story so far has been the heat. And anytime something goes wrong in the tennis world, players start complaining, fans start complaining even louder, and fans start asking, why isn't someone doing anything about this? And we do have the heat policy now. The w- women have had the heat policy for a while at slams. I think the it's more recent for the men, but, but once the... Uh, not the temperature, but the temperature and humidity reach a certain standard. There's a 10-minute break before the third set for women, before the fourth set for men, I believe. So there's a little bit of something being done. Do you think that the slams, or even just the U.S. Open in particular, should do more, like perhaps suspend play when the heat gets to be this much? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, any outdoor sport is going to have very variable conditions and in a a lot of team sports you can at least play a different lineup and substitute players and in this case not only is the player alone but he or she doesn't have any idea going in how long the match is going to go on the other hand in addition to the heat policy there are bathroom breaks there's a generous allotment of time between points. Um, you can change your game style to try to make the points shorter and, and adapt. And the tournament's never had so many shady seats as it's had before. And then there are also a number of places to retreat into air conditioning if that's what you really need to, to recover. So I don't think it's practical, given TV and other tournament schedules, to to suspend play on account of heat. The the one thing a tournament can do maybe is shift more play into evening sessions, and the Open has done that this year in a big way by adding an evening session to the new Armstrong court, and that's two more marquee matches starting at seven and ending, I think, past one in the case of the Muguruza match today. Those are going to be a lot cooler and also are open to any fan who was on the grounds during the day. Grandstand also went pretty late, I think past 10 last night. So there are, there are late matches. It's still pretty unbearable, but it's less unbearable. And there are shady seats, and the the true pros among U.S. Open fans find them. Yeah, and if if you aren't among the true pros, it's pretty easy. You just walk into a stadium and look for where there's unexpected clusters of fans and try to sit as close to them as you can. You might not get the very best seat, but you'll at least be in the vicinity of shade. You can find those pretty quickly in many cases. One point you made that I wanted to highlight was that players can change their game styles 
and that's something we don't see a lot of. Sometimes top players will do it to some extent, trying to serve bigger, keep, point, keep points shorter, go for more, more winners, that sort of thing. Commentators will point it out if there's even just a, a whisper of a change in, in strategy. But you generally don't see very much. And I think that's a really, really big point that I haven't heard much of in the discussion around the heat. Because, I mean, people like to point at global warming. And I, by, by some small number of degrees, that may be a factor compared to Grand Slam tournaments in the past. But there have been really uncomfortably hot U.S. Opens for a long time. Uh, this is not something that you know only happened as soon as Donald Trump was elected. So players have been dealing with this for a long time, and it seems to be more of an issue than ever now. And, and maybe those last couple of degrees really do make a difference. I don't know. But it seems more likely that the fact that general styles of play have changed, matches have, have gotten more demanding physically, that makes the temperature... Uh, harder to deal with and there's a maybe easy is the wrong word but it seems like there's an easy solution to that which is to play differently in a way that's not so demanding and maybe there are I'm, I'm not sure if there are players who are particularly good at that uh, but it seems like that's another type of strategy thing that some players could pursue is, is, is tailor their game a little bit more to the fact that they have to deal with these kind of conditions yeah, it was interesting watching Vasek Pospisil clearly, clearly struggling with the conditions, even in a night match against Nadal, and occasionally just hit out on the return or the first ball he got on a serve just to move the, the match along. But also, in the way that's always surprised me about his game style, engaging in some really long rallies with Rafa that he had almost no chance of winning anyway and seemed like they took a lot out of him. Yeah, that is interesting. And it's also notable that as games, as tennis has gotten more demanding, matches have gotten longer, all that kind of stuff, fans and I guess officials as well have become less tolerant of tanking at all, even really short-term tanking. And I've never seen one of these matches, but people have told me that there are early Federer matches where you can see him tanking at the end of sets or tanking occasional return games. And that's pretty much unthinkable now. I mean, you'll see him do it a little bit, but if, if it's something that Federer was doing 15 years ago, it was probably pretty mainstream. Nowadays, when you can see Kyrgios or a couple other players do it, it's, it's almost instantly controversial. But, you know, if you're down even one break in some men's matches, I mean, you've pretty much lost the set. If you're down two breaks, you've almost definitely lost the set. And in a five-setter, the odds you're going to come back from that versus the energy you can save by just giving it up, I feel like the, the cost-benefit analysis might point towards more tanking. I and mean, I feel like I'm a bad person for advocating tanking, but that is another thing that has changed over the last couple decades that might explain why players are having a harder time dealing with it now. That's fascinating. It certainly seems like the incentives are set up to to tank when you're down in a set because 
you, you as much shit as you might get for doing it, you get a lot more if you retire during a match. I think the players who retire during matches so far this tournament sort of have anonymity in numbers and won't be taken to task too much for it. But you also just have so much incentive to win the match, not necessarily the set, financial and ranking point incentive, that is, and, and incentive with sponsors. So if if it's the difference between finishing out a set but then having nothing left for the next set or throwing the set so you can start the next set fresh, it seems like an easy call. Yeah, and it, that's interesting you, you posed the question that way. I didn't even think about that, that it, it could be the trade-off between retiring or not. And yeah, I agree. I think players feel this way and fans usually feel this way that a retirement is the absolute worst outcome you can get out of a match. So if it reduces retirement, then maybe we should be more tolerant of tanking. And if we put together a couple of the themes of, of recent trends and rule changes, I can see where this is all headed. Tennis wants to get faster. Uh, we've got the, the surf clock, which we've been talking about a lot lately. And there's a the concern about heat and fatigue and all that. So if you do have, if, if players are listening and following our advice, as we know they all do, then if they start tanking a lot, then maybe the next step is to go the direction that, that baseball has gone. Because isn't this, this is the first year, I believe this is the first year, that baseball is doing no pitch intentional walks, right? Uh, that, first year, second year, yeah. Okay, so it, it, it's happening. It, it was discussed for a long time before they finally made the rule change. But instead of having a batter stand there while a pitcher throws four theoretically unhittable pitches, um, to walk the guy, you just you know, make a signal and send the guy to first base because who wants to watch four completely meaningless pitches? There's no point to it. So if, if tanking became widespread enough, you could just have a, a sort of I'm two breaks down signal <laughs> that says, you know, I, okay, I'm, I'm down 4-1, let, let's, uh, let's call it. Maybe you get an extra minute or two break on the, the, the set changeover or something like that. Um, but the, that would be the logical extension of all this stuff is, is to have, you could retire from a set, basically, if it allowed you to not retire from the match. That would be a big step for tennis, I think. Well, I think there would be a lot of controversy if there were an actual incentive to do it in terms of a longer break. But you might need it because otherwise I think players can use those last few games as a bit of a break. Like I'm thinking of Kyrgios during some return games, even in sets where he's up a break, um, where he is already walking to the next side when the other guy's serving. I think it's just like... I will rest while the other player is taking his or her time between points. And if you suddenly don't have any more points and you have to start the next set, then you might be in bad shape because you were needing to tank in the first place. Yeah, that's true. Um, and it's another perverse incentive of the of the serve clock that by making it completely obvious to everyone how much time you can use, if you are trying to give yourself more of a break, then you can watch the clock and serve when there's three seconds left. I mean, almost no players regularly do that without running the risk of a time violation if they don't have a clock to look at. But, you know, let them watch the countdown, and they might be able to, to get an extra five or ten seconds after every break between points. 
So the yeah, three, are... the three challenges also let you burn some time, and we've all seen some terrible challenges that seemed like they were being used only for that reason. That's true, and Simona had one really strange challenge in the Kanepi match. I think it was the point when she went down three love in the second set, and she knew it was out, and she walked straight to the chair, and I guess you don't see that very often. If she was using it to to make the break a little longer, I, that's the only purpose I can imagine, other than the fact that she'd already broken a racket and didn't want to lose a point, so she just needed something to do to express her frustration. But the only the, the only actual benefit um, was was a few seconds of extra time. So, a bit of a strange way of using it. But but yeah, it, we do see see players do it, especially really late in sets when you're not going to probably need the extra challenges anyway. So so yeah, I mean, it, uh, all these relatively new rules in tennis are open up some new possibilities, not all what they were intended to open up. Um, actually, while we're talking about rules, there's one other thing that came up yesterday. Andy Murray lost his second-round match to Fernando Verdasco, and that that in itself is not a huge surprise. We didn't even know whether Murray was going to play. He's been injured. We didn't expect much from him, and we didn't get much from him. But the controversy is, I, I, I guess there was a heat break um, after the third set, so they were both in the locker room, Murray was taking a shower, Verdasco was in an ice bath. I don't know if they were both naked, like Djokovic and his opponent, but in the locker room, Murray goes in to take a shower, he sees Verdasco with his coach and another player chatting away, and that's against the rules. Um, at slams, there's no coaching of that nature, so Murray went to the supervisor and got a typical non-answer, I guess, from from tennis official dumb. So it, 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 the problem in, the, in this specific case is the rules are being weirdly enforced, but we are seeing at the same time an expansion of coaching. In, in qualifying, there was courtside coaching uh, between between games, so coaches didn't have to come to the, the player seats. Um, what's your stance on that, Carl? Do you think... Uh, do you think that tennis would benefit from more on-court, mid-match coaching? Is that something that the ATP should should look at as well as the WTA? On-court or in the locker room? Before I answer that question for you, when there's a long rain delay, do players get to talk to their coaches? I believe so. I, I know that when it's suspended to the next day, they get to talk to their coach. Yeah, it's not sure. like they're sequestered. <laughs> uh, that would that would be a funny scenario if they were literally sequestered from from their coaching staff and probably parents and who knows who else. But yeah, in, in, definitely in those cases, you can talk to your coach. I'm not sure what the line would be. I think that in in any off court rain delay, you can talk to your coach. I can remember cases in the past where players have talked about getting a pep talk or advice or whatever from a coach. Uh, during a rain, rain delay. So I think the answer is yes, no matter what the length. Yeah, and that makes me wonder why the same wouldn't apply during a heat break. It seems like there are two breaks of a similar kind, weather-related, weather-caused. Uh, in terms of the, the broader issue, I, I think about there's a sort of myth around Murray 
when he won his first Grand Slam title, which was here at the U.S. Open, he was up two sets. He lost the next two sets, I think, fairly lopsidedly. This was against Novak Djokovic in 2012. And he there was a bathroom break, and he, he looked in the mirror, and he, he talked to himself, and it's almost like he coached himself. And I think there's a lot of mythology around how players are essentially their own coaches, both with the pep and with the tactics and adjustments. And I think it's a little overdone. I don't find that to be the most compelling thing about the sport, which many people tell me it is, that that players are out there on their own. But I do think we're not losing much by not having coaching. I'm thinking of the next-gen finals and the coaches being mic'd up for quick sessions with players during matches. And I think we've had, we've had that on the WTA tour as well. And most of the time there's not really so much of value imparted that the sport really is, is getting much in the trade-off with giving up the isolation that players face and the need they have to adapt for themselves and think clearly for themselves in the most intense and toughest moments. Yeah, that that's interesting. Uh, for some reason, I expected you to come down much more strongly pro coaching. Um, it's yeah, you you make some good points between this mythology about players coaching themselves. There was there was a year, several years. It must be several years ago now when Federer didn't have a coach that. John Wartime either said in his end-of-the-year column or made a joke in the end-of-his-year column about how Federer himself should be coach of the year. Uh, whatever he was doing was working, clearly. He was number one. So not only did he not need a coach, maybe it was actually the best choice for him to not have a coach. But for most players, there's, there's definitely some, some value there. But what I wonder about is, is the fact that if you do expand coaching beyond the currently pretty strict limits in WTA. I mean, there's still no, you know, uncontrolled yelling from the sidelines besides just generic cheering. There's just these occasional quick meetings on the court. If you do expand it beyond that, you, you do really change the flavor of the sport in a way that a lot of the other recent rule changes don't. I mean, if you think about things like Hawkeye and the serve clock, they feel like really big changes, but that's more just because Tennis is full of traditionalists, and we freaked out about tiny things. I mean, tennis is still the same, even if people can check the lines. And tennis is the same, only just a tiny bit slower because we have the serve clock. So if it, it's different with coaching because, I mean, think about the vibe in Davis Cup or really any sport where you have managers or coaches giving constant feedback to their players or signals, getting involved, like, however much... TV producers like to zoom in on coaches between points, they're not really a factor. And as soon as you do introduce that, yeah, it, it really changes the flavor of the game. And I'm, I'm not sure that would be a positive thing. Yeah, I don't, I just don't think we, we gain a lot. And as you point out with the TV coverage, there's probably already too much focus on coaches. Yeah. And as, as you said, there's, it's not clear how much of value can be imparted. And you've, you've told stories on this podcast before when 
coaches are you know, trying to give information to players and <laughs> either the players don't remember or the coaches have to limit it to one or two points. Uh, yeah, there, there's only only so much coaches can do. So when they when they are coming on in uh, in, in changeovers and the WTA, sometimes it looks like it really helps, sometimes it doesn't. But when you can't understand what they're saying, it's really limited in scope. I mean, it, it doesn't go that much beyond what they're allowed to yell from the sidelines anyway. So, so yeah, it, it will be interesting to see what direction we go, because as, as you point out, they were experimenting with it at the next-gen finals. Um, it's something we've seen all the time in Davis Cup and World Team Tennis. Like there, there's definitely variations of the sport in which there's a lot more coaching, but it isn't something that is so obviously a, a win that, that everyone's gone for it. So we might be left with the mythology of the, the, the lone hero or heroine for a long time to come. The next step, I guess, would be to keep Verdasco's coach out of the locker room, um, which seems like it'd be pretty easy for the U.S. Open to do if they wanted to enforce the rules properly. Um, so, Carl, one last thing I wanted to talk about this week is like I mentioned at the outset, you've been spending some time at the U.S. Open. Um, I was there as well. And I, I don't know whether they're totally done. You, you probably know better than I do. But this has been a multi-year process to add Court 17, the fourth stadium. Um, they tore down or just rebuilt Armstrong. They have a new grandstand in a new location. Uh, court, court 5 is basically a show court now, and that used to be a practice court. There's way better views of lots of the now practice courts. I mean, it, it's, aside from the centerpiece of Arthur Ashe Stadium, it's in many ways unrecognizable from 10 years ago. Um, what do you think about the new grounds? I mean, it, it, how is it different? Is, is it better than it used to be? How do you like it? Even Ashe is unrecognizable with the roof, and it's such a familiar sight coming up the 7 train and now it, it looks really different and, and distinctive with, with the unusual roof structure. I I can't think of a single change I don't like. I mean, I, I miss the old grandstand, sure. But the old grandstand was kind of annoying to get into. And the new grandstand has a really nice circular walkway around the top that allows you to walk in and around and find a seat even in between changeovers. And there are a couple of other places around the grounds where that's possible. And I think that in and of itself is a is a welcome change. It's one of the more frustrating things about a tennis tournament that you can get to an entrance and then wait 10 or 15 minutes because there are a couple of long games. There's more shade, as we talked about. There's they're just more seats with good views and more ways to get in and out of them. There's more value for your ticket because there are stadium more stadium courts with with nice seats that go late. I mean, the Armstrong night session means that you can buy a grounds pass and stay and watch top tennis or watch outer courts if you want, but you're guaranteed that top tennis is going to be going at least till 11 probably. So you can you can pack a whole lot of tennis into one day. You know, there's still a lot of the frustrations. They have not completely solved the U.S. Open fan experience. It's still really tough with crowd flow in a lot of places. 
there still probably aren't enough bathrooms and water fountains. Security is still a real choke point. It's still ridiculously expensive and, and catering to a pretty wealthy crowd. But I think given the space limitations, they've they've done a lot of good things. But I'd love to hear your take because you come there are more years between your visits, so you may be able to have a, a longer view. Yeah, well, I, I, I do think I have a longer view. Um, not sure. My conclusions are much different. This was the first year I'd been there for maybe three years, maybe four. I think we figured out it had to be three. Um, I had seen Court 17 before. I might have been there the first year of Court 17. But, I mean, the grandstand was new to me, like it was new to everyone, um, well, in the last couple of years. Armstrong was brand new. Um, I'd seen the new four, five, six before, but this was the first time I was at a day of the main draw and got to enjoy that. And yeah, I mean, I think the biggest win is, is the, partly just the number of seats, but also the number of enjoyable seats to be in. And one thing Carl and I, we talked about when we were there that I, I haven't found an answer for yet is how many more tickets they're selling. Um, which I thought would be a big factor because my memory of main draw days of the U.S. Open is just the insufferable crowds. I mean, I, I'm I'm very crowd averse. I'm aware of that. So, I mean, don't stay away from the U.S. Open just because I hate the crowds. But that's a that's a major issue for me and why I've I've probably only gone on back to back days a few times in my life and never will again. It's just it's too much for me to handle. And I expected it would be worse because they, they must be selling more tickets with the additional stadium compared to maybe five years ago. But to my surprise, at least on Monday, it was better crowd-wise than it had been in the past. I mean, the, the crowds around the grounds, going to and from the food village and all the, um, the corporate-sponsored tents and stuff like that, that was worse. But on the courts themselves, uh, the difficulty of, of getting a seat to watch some good tennis from a good vantage point that's way better than I remember it being. I mean, as, as we saw, Carl, when we tried to go see Sitsipas on day one, there, there can still be quite a line to get into court 7 and 11, um, especially court, court 11, I think. But, but yeah, as you point out, the, the access points to grandstand and to 17 make it really easy to get in and check things out. You can sit down without waiting for a changeover. Um, the fact that there are more bigger courts mean you're more likely to be able to get a seat for a good but not marquee match. So, for instance, anything that's on Court 17, which is a legit stadium, they used to have to put that on 11, which just has one big grandstand on one side. I mean, there's probably three times as many seats, I don't know, ballparking it, um, for, let's just say, Kevin Anderson, Ryan Harrison, which was going on Monday. And that's a match that would have been completely packed probably from, from the first changeover in the old days. And I'm guessing you could get in to sit there on court 17. I didn't want to because it's Kevin Anderson, Ryan Harrison. I don't imagine, I don't understand why anyone would want to, but, you know, people have different preferences. That's beside the point. But, yeah, I was pleasantly surprised. I expected not to like it. I'm, you know, I, I generally like things the way they were. I have lots of great memories from the old National Tennis Center. Um, but... Yeah, I was pleasantly surprised by by all the changes and, and think it's more fan-friendly fan than it ever has been. So thumbs up to the USGA. This is a, a big win for them, I think. Pete Bodo and ESPN had a good column describing what the 
facility was like when the U.S. Open moved to Flushing Meadows in, I think, 1978. And we, we celebrate anniversaries and there's gauzy film and it, everything looks so, so wonderful. But he described pretty starkly just how not fan-friendly and, and how ugly everything was. They had to rush to get everything at least tennis-ready for the first tournament, but it wasn't really fan-ready. And... You know, you're saying that maybe they're they're now done, and I think they are done with with their current project. But I think it's been a 40-year project to try to get this facility to to feel like a great place for fans. Yeah, um, yeah, it's an, it's an interesting challenge to think through that to to have a tennis venue with that that can handle days with matches on 20 courts, days with matches on one court, um, thousands and thousands of fans who might want to be in a stadium, might want to be in a food village, might want to be on court six because of a surprising American youngster playing a third set tiebreak. I mean, there's, when you start thinking about the challenges of making something like this fan friendly, they really do spiral out of control. And yeah, there's no way to prepare for that. I mean, even if they had a lot more resources, I don't think people would have even thought all that through before uh, before building something that long ago. In other places like Indian Wells that have been aggressively developing in the last decade, they at least have the experience of the U.S. Open and the other slams to go off of, and I think the Australian Open has done a good job in this in this regard as well, uh, building a more fan friendly experience. But but yeah, it's. Um, it, it's it's unique in sports. I think the the challenges that come with with the fan experience in tennis. So it's it's nice to see something that really does it right. And you know, like you say, it's an expensive ticket, but at the same time, when you compare it to what else you can buy for a hundred dollars in New York City, uh, yeah, you can go watch world class tennis for twelve or fourteen hours. And I don't know if you can get twelve or fourteen hours of anything else good in New York City. For that kind of money, um, or most anywhere else, for that matter. But I mean, the ticket prices are similar in Indian Wells and a lot of Masters events and things like that. So, so it's expensive, and it does get limited to a certain uh, a, a, a certain classes of uh, of people in New York. But it's not uniquely bad by any stretch. I mean, in in some ways, the U.S. Open might even be be easier to get to for some people than. Uh, than some other tournaments that don't have as many seats or grounds passes and things like that. So seems like a lot of positives from my point of view. Anything else, Carl, on uh, that we haven't talked about yet with the new tennis center? I think one improvement that they could still make that would not be visible is better Wi-Fi and. I say that not to load selfies to Instagram faster, but because one of the wonders of the first week of the Open is that there's great tennis all over the grounds, but it's still not that easy to figure out at any one time what's going on around the grounds, and the cell networks inevitably can't handle the uh, the demand. So if there were better, more reliable Wi-Fi, I think it would make that experience of knowing where to go next even easier. It's funny you say that. I, I meant to mention that, but in the opposite direction. I had 
they have free Wi-Fi on the grounds now, and this is the first time I've been when I had that. And for various reasons not worth going into, I've never been there and had mobile data, including this year. So that was a huge, huge, huge improvement for me. Uh, it did occasionally not work, but the 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 public free Wi-Fi was actually quite good. You know, I, I, it's possible, Carl, that if you'd switched to that, you would have been better off than than with your own network. Um, it was it it wasn't a problem for me through three full days of qualifying in main draw. Yeah, I mean, I definitely found it better during qualities when there were fewer people there, and I realized I'm also being a little ridiculous going from, oh, they didn't have Wi-Fi at all to, oh, the Wi-Fi could be a little more reliable and, and, and better. But, you know, we, we fans always demand more. Yes, we do. Um, on that note, with our listeners demanding more silence or more of another podcast or more preparation for next week's episode, I think we should call that good. Thank you, Carl, as always. Thanks, Jeff. Um, Thank you, listeners, for joining us. This has been episode 30 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. There's a lot of new content lately at TennisAbstract.com. You should check out the blog. I'm sure there will be more um, through this week and weekend as well. And be sure to check out the 30 Love podcast. Carl's had some great guests with more coming up. And we will try to be back with you early next week for more during the U.S. Open. We will see you then. <laughs>